Hi, everyone, and welcome to the ADSR Inspirations Podcast. My name is James Mallion. I'm your host as I introduce you to inspirational and artful souls from all over the world. I'm deeply interested in music, film, the arts, achieving goals, overcoming struggles, and big ideas. So join me as we uncover some life lessons and knowledge. We're based out of Tokyo, Japan, and we'll be speaking with people from all over the world, ranging from artists, musicians, creatives, leaders, big thinkers, and those who strive to do and be great. Thanks for listening along. Now let's get inspired. Welcome to ADSR Inspirations. It's your host, James. Today, we have a special guest joining us. Like always, they're all special. We have Joe Oliver, a British artist, designer, and DJ, based again right here in Tokyo. And Joe's journey began in 2018 when he arrived in Japan, really in his own words, without much of a plan. And since then, he's made remarkable strides in both the design and music scenes here in Tokyo and Japan as a freelance visual designer specializing in UI and UX. Joe has worked with notable clients like JAL, Rakuten, Toshiba, and Sony, showcasing his talent across branding, packaging, and illustration. But of course, that's not all. Joe's passion for music has also propelled him into Tokyo's vibrant nightlife known as Joe O in the DJ world. He's graced the stages of venues like Vent, Womb, Red Bar. Additionally, Joe co-hosts the popular Yes Chef party at Shibuya's Oath and holds a residency on Kiki Radio co-hosting Yes Chef Radio. So we're going to hear all about the Yes Chef brand that he came up with. So without further ado, let's get into Joe's fascinating journey, exploring the intersections of design and music, and gain some insights into Tokyo's dynamic creative landscape. All right, welcome back to ADSR Inspirations. And today we have Another great guest joining us, Joe Oliver, a British artist, designer, DJ, based uh, right here in Tokyo. And Joe's journey began in 2018 when he arrived in Japan, I suppose without uh, too much of a plan. And since then, he's made remarkable strides in both the design and music scenes. I'll leave it at that for now. Let's welcome to the show, Joe Oliver. Hey, thanks for having me. How are we doing? Cheers. Yeah, thanks for coming on, man. I know uh, you got a lot going on uh, in both, you know, the design and music side of things. So thanks for making the time. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for thanks for having me on. So, you know, I guess there's a few directions we can start, uh, either with, you know, the design art side of things or more on the music side of things. I guess for you, uh, which which one of these passions sort of came first in your life? Um, did you kind of, you know, when you're coming up, did you have dreams of uh, being a designer, a musician? Was it kind of uh, you're always into both sort of things? Uh, 
what what was it like when you were kind of growing up in terms of both those passions? Um, for me, I've always wanted to be a designer. That's been my kind of life target from as long as I can remember, really. I think um, I was one of those people, I was quite lucky, I guess, where I never really had much debate or doubt over what I wanted to do when I grew up. Um, all through school, I was drawing and into art. And when it came down to kind of choosing my subjects to go forward with in school, I always, you know, had an easy an easy path to, to choose art and design, basically every step. Um, my dad was working in the kind of advertising industry. My uncle is a successful illustrator as well. So maybe I had some kind of external influences guiding me that way, looking back mm. on it. But yeah, um, it was all I ever wanted to do was to, was to work in design. Um, and the music was obviously kind of secondary. I never studied music, but I was in bands from around sort of 13, playing punk and metal um, on the drums. So music was always kind of alongside design, but design was always my primary kind of focus, I would say. Right, 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 right. Okay, that's cool. So yeah, I guess like you mentioned, you had those external influences and you were it was kind of in your life you know you were studying uh you went to uh you went to school you went to what was it nottingham trent university to study design and then from the looks of it you just kind of jumped into the workplace shortly after that was that the case you just almost immediately started working after uni yeah, so what happened was actually in um, in the UK we call sick form. Um, I know it's different, you know, called differently around the world, but kind of after high school, I guess we uh, do another couple of years, um, kind of college, I guess. Um, so I was I was studying design, and there's a famous art school called Central Saint Martins in London, and I kind of never even considered that I might try to go there. Mm. But um, my dad basically said, let's, let's, let's give it a go. You never know, right? And so I worked hard with my art teachers at the time and applied, and I got in there. So I did um, my what was called foundation year at Central St. Martins in London, where it was basically a year of trying all different disciplines out. So I did a bit of architecture, a bit of fashion. I tried everything, uh, just a year of experimentation and partying with new strange people from all over the world, really, in in London. Um, and then after that, I did my full-time degree for three years in, in Nottingham, yeah, at Trent, which is another amazing city, great design school. Um, and off the back of that, I took my design work back to London for the kind of graduate shows, which mm. is basically where, you know, you'll take your portfolio and your different pieces and lots of heads from industry come around with business cards and shake hands and uh, hobnob and network and try and try and find some, some work or some internships. Um, and off the back of that, I ended up doing an internship with, 
an illustrator, my, actually my favourite illustrator at the time, called uh, James Joyce, who, um, if you if you take a look, is very very successful and has a style which is very minimal and colourful, and it was exactly the sort of thing that I was I was doing at that time as well. So he, yeah, he saw my work and invited me into his studio. So I worked alongside him as a kind of intern, really. Um, just me and him one-on-one he taught me a lot about illustration and uh, editorial design Um, you know I was working on covers for for Le Mans magazine and things for Greenpeace it was kind of crazy to finally like be thrust into that kind of world Um, so that was great and then I moved into the advertising world properly really after that and that's sort of when my career began as a designer Mm, right would you say like i guess during during this time did you have like a specialty or an area of focus something that you were really um you know more interested um you know than other areas yeah so i think at that time that time my my love for design it morphed more into a love of illustration. So I was really focused on uh, kind of vector illustration, big, bold, colorful um, uh, editorial pieces, poster design. So when I took my work to um, D&D New Blood and New Designers, which are the big kind of graduate shows in London, it was all very very bold and colourful illustration work. So I wanted to be, you know, doing doing illustration uh, commissions. And I did a few, you know. I did, um, like I say, I worked with, with James, James Joyce in his studio and did some work there. And I did, I got my first commissions for uh, a magazine called Popular Mechanics Magazine in America, which mm-hmm. apparently is quite, quite well known, but I'd never heard of it at the time. And I did... Uh, yeah, I did a few uh, illustration pieces for, for inside the magazine. Um, so I was getting sent literal checks for, you know, in American dollars over from New York. I didn't know what to do with. And I thought, this is it. I'm going to be an illustrator um, at the age of, you know, I must have been what, 20, 21 or 22. Um, and it was going really well. But over time, I kind of realized that, that is a very, very tricky game to be in without much experience. And eventually the commissions for illustration were getting kind of fewer and fewer. Mm. Although I was still illustrating as much as I could, I was finding more that it was, it's a case of, um, you know, who you know and the contacts you have and being on an agency's books for sort of regular work, um, which is why I decided I should find a, kind of job that I could get a salary and keep myself living right, um, right, which right. I did which was not quite illustration but it was still design work yeah sure sure yeah I'm sure that's kind of the struggle that a lot of people kind of go through um you know when they're in that industry so at this time like you were living you were living in a flat in London or something and then you were um you were doing the commission work and then you transitioned into a company yeah so this was at this time i was i'd moved back from nottingham after graduating i was back in with my parents 
Um, right. So I was working working on um, just illustrating all the, all the time as much as I could from my parents' house back in the suburbs of of just outside North London. Um, <clears throat> until basically, what what happened was I was you know searching for design jobs in the city. Um, and I wasn't having, it's the, you know, the tale as old as time. I was getting a lot of rejections. Obviously, I was just a, a new graduate without much experience, really. Um, and I applied for a job as a assistant, a kind of PA job at a big advertising agency um, in, in Chelsea in London. And I got an email back saying, you know, you're obviously not suited for the job. What I'd done was I'd actually attached my portfolio in the off chance that it would end up being seen by the right people. Um, so I got contacted by the creative director there and he said, you know, look, you're obviously not a PA, you know, you're not, you're not fooling anyone there. Um, but we really like your design work. So we'd love you to come in and talk to us about possible kind of internship and maybe a junior role here. Mm. So I kind of Trojan horsed my way into that first job really. Nice. Nice. And it kind of went from there. Right, right, right. That's cool. Um, so, what, what, uh, like, what years are we talking about here? How long ago is this? That must have been twenty twelve, I guess. Twenty eleven, right. okay. maybe. I must have graduated in twenty eleven. Yeah, yep. I think twenty twelve. The summer of twenty twelve. Big summer in London as well. That was the Olympic year. <laughs> right, right. So it was an exciting time. Right. Yeah, just to get like a general time frame of everything. And then, um, so you were working away for a little bit and then when was it, uh, when was it that you went to Australia then? So, yeah. So what happened was I was, you know, obviously working in industry for a long time and I was moving up from my internship to, you know, a few years down the line into my career. Mm -hmm. So it's been about 2014 I went around I basically was getting tired of, of London a little bit so me and my best friend decided to kind of do the big back the backpacking trip that we'd always wanted to do in university but we were kind of working too hard at the time to take a yeah. gap year kind of felt like I missed out on that because I was mm. you know things were going well and I was I was working and and studying uh, so we just took a round the world trip for three months and we went literally around the world. So in Asia, Australia, America, uh, even Fiji, Mexico. Oh, it was wow, fantastic. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was, I mean, it's it obviously very common in the UK for people to do that these days as well. But obviously, it, you know, really opened my eyes to the possibilities of, of travel um, and also for living in another country. So obviously stopping in Australia was amazing. Um, and coming back to London, it was very hard to get back into the kind of city work life. Um, and I thought one day I'd love to I'd love to move there and we can get working holiday visas in Australia from the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, so a group of friends and I, a few years later, decided, right, let's just, you know, London's a hard and expensive city to live in. Let's uh, let's try doing the same thing in in Australia. So we four of us uh, just shipped off to Melbourne, and I've never been to Melbourne before. I'd only been right. to Sydney and Brisbane, so we just turned up there and uh, thought let's try and make something work. 
So were you kind of, let me, let me just jump back a little bit on this initial kind of like sure. backpacking tour. Um, Mm. Was Japan was Japan one of the stops on your tour as well? Not um, not on that tour, but right, there okay. were there were a lot more of these trips in the future to come. Oh, right Japan. on! Nice, nice. Yeah, okay. that's how we get to Japan. Okay, okay, yeah, we'll get there. So, all right, uh, I guess this is like um, time frame 2015, 2016, something like that, right? That's right. It's 2016 to 2017. I was living in Melbourne. Yeah. Okay. Right. So you went to Melbourne with a couple mates and uh, like, were you getting like steady kind of freelance work at this time or you just kind of went there and were like, okay, I have some skills. Let's see what happens. So yeah, when I moved to Australia, that was a straight up job quit situation. So I just said, I'm off. Yeah. Um, and I turned up with, yeah, with no contacts at that time. But, you know, to be honest, with what I do and the kind of experience and portfolio I had by that point, it took me very luckily, not very long at all to get my first job in, in Melbourne. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was, I was freelancing at that time, mainly because of working holiday visa restrictions really i think you can only work for one firm for six months on a working holiday visa so Mm -hmm. i got a six-month contract at a a wonderful uh, boutique branding agency uh, and packaging agency so within a few weeks of landing in melbourne i was designing uh, cadbury chocolate wrappers and packaging and um putting a Christmas hat on Freddo the Frog. For anyone who knows the, the Cadbury character, Freddo the Frog, I designed the, the <laughs> Christmas Freddo. So that was great. Yeah, yeah. And then the second six months, I moved straight over to Saatchi and Saatchi, which was another great experience, a big kind of famous agency over there. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I luck, very lucky. I didn't have any trouble finding work in Australia with the skills that I'd kind of worked to get. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that does sound like... Uh... It was a good combination of, you know, your skills working out and, you know, sometimes luck or being in the right place kind of plays into things too. Um, So that time you were in Australia for about a year, a little over a year. Yeah, it was just a year, a year long visa. Um, Mm -hmm. And I mean, looking back at that time, living in another country for the first time, a year felt like a long, long time, you know. I met mm. so many new friends, um, and it was an amazing experience. But I guess the, the pull of the pull of travel was there, and also with the visa situation. Famously, you have to kind of do your farm work to get oh, really? your second year on the visa. Yeah, picking fruit or working in the mine or whatever. Which I, you know, apparently it can be quite fun. But with with my kind of career behind me, I. I was getting work okay and I thought maybe I don't need to do that. Mm. And when I had the offer of staying kind of permanently, I wasn't really ready to commit at that time. Mm -hmm. So I decided to head back out on the backpacking trail. Right. Um, So I left Melbourne for New Zealand. I traveled the length of New Zealand. This is solo. And then went to uh, Seoul and Korea and then finally to Tokyo for the first mm-hmm. time, which was my my dream destination. 
So that's how I you know, ended up in Tokyo for the first time. Yeah, that opened a, a whole new box. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, this first trip to Tokyo, this would have been what, like 2017 then or something, right? Or yeah, a little bit right. earlier? Oh, okay, 2017, Back right? 2017, so, yeah. Okay, so you did the New Zealand, you were in Korea a little bit, and then finally Tokyo. Um, how much time did you spend in Tokyo during this first visit? So this one was, I think, three weeks. What, what happened is I hadn't seen my my family for the whole time I was in Australia, and I, I didn't come home to the UK or anything. So I hadn't seen my family for that whole year and mm-hmm. my friends in the UK. So what I'd arranged was I said, look, I'm going to be in Tokyo on these days. So my two brothers and my dad flew out and arrived on the same day and also my best friend from the uk one of my best friends arrived at the airport at the same time so all sort of me my dad my brothers and my and my mate were all at kind of narita airport at 7 30 in the morning <laughs> you know buzzing buzzing our um buzzing out of our tree ready to explore so it was a big reunion and a big amazing i think it was three week adventure yeah yeah. So, uh, what was like? What were you guys up to during this time? So, yeah, my dad and my brothers were there for basically just in Tokyo for just mm-hmm. over a week, I think it was. So, we spent the first time just, you know, going through Tokyo, which obviously you could do for for weeks and weeks. There's so much to do, mm-hmm. um, eating and going to bars and, and meeting new people and just having the classic kind of Tokyo first time visitor experience. Sure. And then me and my mate ended up getting the rail pass and heading down to Osaka, Kyoto, mm-hmm. um, Hiroshima mm. and yeah. And just exploring, exploring down there as well. And it obviously left a massive, impression in my mind once the trip was over right right so then uh okay yeah after the trip was over those three weeks then you finally head back to the uk at this point yeah so after that it was back to the uk um back to freelance work so then i was back in london basically freelancing and and literally kind of couch surfing a little bit at that time doing just short-term lets they're they're a lot more common in, in london you can okay. you know you can go on on different websites and and find a sublet for a couple of months or whatever so i did a few of those i was bouncing around and then um just just stashing my acorns a little bit for the next trip which then came around at the end of that year i guess about six months after coming back from japan I was off to South America for four months mm-hmm. um, with a group, a group of friends. So everything got put back on the got back on the grill, and we were off to South America. Right, right, right. Yeah. Wait, so this time in London, like you were finding freelance work, or you were just doing jobs here and there? Yeah, so I I came back and then went to a few different agencies. Um, some short-term contracts, some long-term contracts, mainly, um, design, I did some design for events. And then I got 
a offer to work in Canary Wharf, which is the kind of the financial city district of of London, which is not the usual territory for creatives and designers. We're not really usually that welcome around those parts. Mm. But it was a it was a very it was for a financial services company, like a digital payments company, and they seemed pretty forward thinking. The pay was obviously a lot better than the normal for a job like that. So it was only a short term contract. I thought, let's do it. They asked me to wear a shirt and trousers <laughs> and a tie, and I had to have security clearance for the big, you know, there's a big kind of skyscraper. So I went off. I didn't really have a shirt and trousers. I never <laughs> have to wear anything smart for my for my job. Luckily, it's one of the perks of working in design, I guess. So I went out the night before and bought all this stuff. And when I turned up, I realised. I didn't need any of it. My new creative <laughs> director basically told me, "What are you dressed like that for?" Yeah, yeah. Um, that, yeah, that was, an, that was another experience. You know, nice mm. people, very different work environment for me. But as a freelancer, mm. you know, when the when the job comes up, the job comes up. You can't be too fussy, really. Right, 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 right. And then I guess, did you have that? Like, did you have this other trip in the back of your mind? Or uh, that was kind of more like a sudden thing? Like, do you always have it like, okay, I'm going to travel again. You know, this is just going to be a part-time thing. Yeah, I think it's always there. I didn't really have any mm. solid plan at that point. Um, yeah. Obviously, I was, I was the way I was working, keeping myself freelance and doing the smaller jobs, I knew that I wanted to keep that certain sense of... Um, you know, that I could sort of drop everything and leave very quickly if I wanted to. I always liked to have that, at least at that time in my life, it was exciting. You know, I didn't have any commitments. My, you know, even my phone contract, I didn't have a long-term phone contract. I just bought my phone and was rolling month by month. Mm -hmm. My apartments were always very short-term. My work contracts, obviously short-term too. So I knew once the next piece was was ready i could just sort of hop off and and do it again and that's kind of what happened so some friends basically messaged me and say right we're going to a few of us are together we're going to south america do you want in <laughs> and i was like well here we go then it kind of found <laughs> me this time let's let's yeah. do it <laughs> yeah yeah so we were off right 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 um so how long uh how long was this one for then this one ended up being well. It was it was kind of open ended to begin with, but it ended up being, I think, from maybe September until Christmas. Um, mm -hmm. I did the first little part solo. Everyone was going to meet in in Santiago and Chile, but I found some nice cheap flights to Cuba, and I always wanted to go to Cuba, so I went there solo. Had a great time, and then flew on to. Chile and met the rest of the crew it's probably mm. I think six five or six of us at that point mm. and we just snaked our way from the tip of Patagonia and then all the way back up all, all the way to the back to the Caribbean I suppose yeah up to up to Panama mm -hmm. um, Bolivia Peru Argentina Brazil adventures everywhere just incredible incredible place amazing for backpacking Sure. And yeah, and then back to London from Panama after right. I guess about four months. Right, right, right. So this trip was 
this trip was just kind of uh, backpacking and touring around. Um, no, no real work was going on during this one. No, I was I was able to kind of take take this time out really. Um, I I did consider at one point um, there's a there's a hostel, an amazing. It's not even really a hostel technically, but it's in the jungle in Colombia called El Rio. It's mm-hmm. pretty well known. I'm sure there's a fair few people who would probably recognise it. Um, I had the chance to stay there and work as their designer for a while. They offered me the chance to stay. I, mm-hmm. I think about that sometimes, whether I should have done that or not. But I was <laughs> too happy to keep moving at that time. Right. Well, that that was deep in the jungle as well. That could have been an interesting, an interesting few months, or who knows how long if I'd done that. But <laughs> no, no, otherwise, yeah, otherwise, no, um, no, no work in South America. Right. Sure, sure, sure. Right, right, right. Um, okay, right. So you do the South American tour, have a blast, and back in end up back in london and when you get back is it like okay i'm gonna you know maybe settle down a bit or do you still always have this thing sort of creeping in the back of your head it's like okay you know let's make some more money and figure out where i'm going next yeah well exactly that i think at this point i'd settled into a nice kind of rhythm in my life which is even even now to where I am in my life right now, it seems exhausting. But I was <laughs> I was super happy spending half the year kind of traveling around and half the year working my um, working myself into the ground to save and, and get as much you know freelance as I could, just hustle around the city. So I was mm-hmm. kind of doing that, rinsing and repeating, really. So I got back from mm-hmm. South America and straight back into the freelance world straight back into you know various agencies around around town um working hard doing some doing some nice work until a pub conversation which is another classic classic british staple over a few over a few jars said to my mate who i went to japan with hey you know there's a working holiday in tokyo uh, in japan so we can go to tokyo yeah. Um and live. So that was it, right? That's the next one then. So Yeah. Yeah. Worked and told people I'm moving I'm moving to Japan. I'm moving to Tokyo and everyone, oh that sounds great. Obviously probably <laughs> not believing we'd ever do it. Yeah. And then we did. We just turned up and right. you know, got our visas from the embassy. In the you know, the Japan embassy in the UK is I don't know, it probably, probably works the same way in other countries too, but it's not like on Australia where it's all online. You just submit your ID and get approved in an email. We had to write a letter. We had to write uh, an itinerary of our plans in Japan, and we had to go in person with all of our documents and bank statements yep. to the Japanese embassy. Yep. And uh, you've done the same thing, I'm sure, yeah. So that was even an experience, you know. It was all part of the fun looking back. We were stressing, yeah. This this was a this was a working holiday visa you're talking about, right? Or the work and play? Or That's right. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And that was a that was a one year visa, or how long was that one? It was a year. Yeah, it's just yeah. a year long. I don't think we could do any longer at that time, at least. Right, 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 right. 
Okay. Yeah. That was a, so this probably leads into this blog post that I read of yours, uh, when you kind of were first arriving in the country and trying to get an apartment and, uh, going through all these different challenges. Um, you know, it's different, like for a lot of people, um, who maybe come to Japan, right? Like, so you're coming, you're coming here in 2018 without, I guess, like a concrete plan, so to speak. Um, you know, like a lot of people, when they come, they probably have this support group or they already have a job or they have people that'll help them with all that stuff. So, uh, you're getting here and, um, you know, you explain it in this blog post, but, uh, I guess give like a short version of like, you know, just for someone coming more on a whim, like you did, uh, even to get an apartment, uh, like what, what that's like. Yeah, that's probably the most, it's probably the most stressful experience of my, of my life so far over those period of weeks and months honestly it was i hadn't i had no idea what to expect um Mm -hmm. i mean first of all i obviously didn't speak any japanese at that point at all i I was trying to learn hiragana and katakana a few you know a few weeks before my flight out and i didn't you know i'm not really i wasn't at that point a big kind of japanophile i didn't really Know a whole lot about the practicalities of of living here and and cultural stuff, apart from more pop culture. So turning up, we didn't know anybody. Uh, Luckily, I was with my friend. Um, Mm. We booked ourselves into some Airbnbs, absolutely just ripping through our savings. And you know, from day one arriving this time, it wasn't a tourist trip. The first day we arrived jet lagged as hell we were traipsing around um trying to get real estate offices to even talk to us which you know nine out of ten would just kind of tell us to go away literally um but luckily we met some amazing uh, some amazing people here who pushed us in the right direction we ended up finding um a real estate real estate guy through an office who would uh, who would who would talk to us and could speak english and would would help us out so the problem is once you've found an apartment before you can even do that you need to have a mobile phone number and you need to have a job and you need to have all of these other pieces in place and yeah. to have a mobile phone you need an address and before you can have an address you need it so it, it's like yeah. a a four-way chicken and egg situation. So we had to bluff and kind of fake our way through it. Um, you know, we had to use our Airbnb or other addresses to have our items delivered and kind of wait by the door for them to be delivered so we could sneakily, you know, pretend that we lived there and then, um, you know, put down kind of less than authentic job references on our or housing applications. Yeah. But, you know, we were confident that it would, it would all work out. And we had savings as well. So we even said to the, mm. to the real estate guys that rather than you're obviously worried about the risk of these two idiot foreigners turning up, but why don't we just pay for our entire year deposit so you have the security to know that we're not going to, you know, 
mess you around. But that that wasn't that was met with very confused looks. The idea of just paying for a year up front was not did not compute. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Well, it is. Yeah, it is a little bit funny, you know. Like they're offering these visas, and but when you do get them and you come here, you do have to kind of go through a lot of hoops to kind of make it happen. Or like they probably want a lot of people to kind of have jobs set up already or contacts, but you know it's definitely not an easy thing to do. Yeah, I think I still I still haven't really met too many other people who were as maybe foolish as we were who didn't have a college course or you know a job transfer or mm-hmm. you know a, a kind of at least a link to move here we literally knew nothing and we knew <laughs> nobody um and i kind of thought it would just be like how oh, i did it in australia honestly mm. but then i realized i was i was wrong <laughs> it was yeah, yeah. way more stressful way obviously way harder to find work um and it's very expensive to be a kind of semi-permanent tourist in this city once you live here i think it's it can be pretty cheap Mm. but staying in airbnbs and things like that that is a good way to burn through your money pretty quick sure yeah for tourists definitely uh, things can add up um well you know you made it through that and here you are like almost five years later, right? So um, it can yeah, be done. Yeah, it somehow. Right. Yeah. I kind of I, I want to jump. Let's jump to, um, you know, like you've got a lot going on on the music side of things too. You know, you, go, you got the Yes Chef thing going on. You have DJed a lot of parties and big clubs and, you know, put on your own parties. You do the radio show. Um, Let's uh let's kind of jump to that side of it a little bit. So obviously, you know, coming up in the UK and uh you know living you know outside of London but then spending some time in London obviously is pretty famous for music and clubs and DJs and you mentioned playing in bands growing up. Um so like how how has the music side of things gone over these years like were you always kind of going to parties and clubs like were you um were you DJing you know sort of through those years as well uh still playing in bands um how is uh yeah how's that kind of gone I think um yeah musically through my kind of younger years I was you know my first real interest in music as a teenager was very much focused on hardcore and metal and I was going to uh, festivals at, at Donington and I was very engrossed in, in that world. Um, playing drums, like I said earlier in a band, you know, playing hard and fast, um, kind of punk and metal music. And then I guess as my tastes changed, as I got older, I was, I never lost interest in that music and I still love that stuff to this day, but I started getting more interested in, you know, liquid drum and bass and happy hardcore and, and, and party music, I guess. Started going to what we were calling at that time free parties in the UK, sort of illegal raves, I guess. Yeah. Um, and just kind of, yeah, discovering discovering that world. Friends and I would go to all different parties and festivals. 
Um, and by the time I got to university, I had interest in, in sort of DJing myself through seeing a friend DJing, basically. Um, you know, so I bought the, bought the gear and just started doing, doing house parties. And then I was getting asked at that point by other random people across, you know, this is in Nottingham at the time, to if I could go and DJ their party basically for a little bit of pocket money. So I'll just rock up at some randoms party and, and DJ there. And it was great fun. You know, I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. Because you know, obviously DJing is, is just so fun. Um, but then I guess, you know, I never really carried on that while I was traveling, I took a bit of a back seat. I'd always have my music on me, but I didn't really DJ that much because I guess I didn't really have, own anything at those points i was basically living out of a bag for a long long time as we mm-hmm. went through earlier traveling around and then yeah coming to tokyo it kind of kicked back off again with records really i'd never really mm-hmm. bought any records because I, I never had anywhere to to put them or anything to do with them right but okay settling so- here so sorry, like when you were DJing initially, like through uni and stuff, that was just with like CDJs and stuff, or like you didn't really have records at that time. Yeah, no, I was just a you know a snotty university kid playing <laughs> my my you know, I was playing YouTube rips and <laughs> right, 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 you right. know down downloading from from blogs and stuff like that, and just gathering what I could from where it was when it was when dubstep was really blowing up so i was finding all yeah. these kind of strange blogs and stuff but no records i i i don't think i even really considered i don't think i had money to buy a single record let alone start <laughs> collecting at that time right okay so it wasn't quite until you came to japan okay yeah sorry go on with uh yeah your japan story no i think um mo- moving here and having an apartment here um I was, you know, I live in Shimokitazawa, so it's obviously full of, absolutely full of record shops. So I was spending all my time looking for work, also looking for, you know, looking at records. So I was slowly buying, buying records, and I bought my first turntables. They're also kind of half the price that they are in London to get mm-hmm. my, um, to get my turntables, and it just. You know, I was warned that this would happen with, with vinyl, <laughs> but it just exploded into a full-blown addiction from a habit. Yeah, and I ended up just buying a lot as many records as I could, and then obviously learning to beat match and learning to mix was so was so fun, um, and that was, you know, where it all kind of kicked back off, I guess, for me. Right, right, right. So. Um... You mentioned kind of like, you mentioned back in the day, you know, like dubstep, drum and bass, hardcore, stuff like this. Um, is that kind of like what you were playing then? And um, like, how is that kind of like transitioned? Uh, I guess these days you're playing more kind of like house music or like funkier stuff, disco kind of stuff. Um, yeah, what, what, what were you playing initially and uh, what do you kind of... What we're all what what are what's these like ton of records that you're buying these days? I guess both of those. Yeah, back back then, <clears throat> in sort of I guess maybe two thousand seven, two thousand six, maybe 
I, you know, I didn't really have what I would say is a refined music taste. I was playing anything I liked and anything that was kind of, I guess, popular and, and what people were into at that time, myself included. So there's a lot of dubstep at that time. And in the UK, there was a bit of a musical shift when dubstep started to get a bit too commercial and it switched to kind of deep house. Everyone was into deep house and I was kind of just looking back on it. It's, it's waves of, of, of music and genres that, that sweep across. And I was just kind of riding that wave and wherever I was into, I was playing. Mm-hmm. I didn't really have that much understanding of music and the history of, of dance music. It took a bit of time, you know, which it does to learn about that kind of thing. By the time I moved to Japan, my taste was a lot more, uh, you know, a lot more mature, I guess, a lot more focused. Mm. So I started by buying a lot of um, UK garage stuff. Well, I've always loved UK garage. Obviously house music. I, I love house music. So a lot of house music records. Yeah, a lot of disco as I'm saying this now, I'm realizing my tastes haven't focused at all. I'm still <laughs> buying whatever I like. <laughs> but but when I was playing, I'm always always more interested in playing house and disco music. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. So you still have a pretty uh, huge collection or like a varied collection, I guess you're saying is kind of like spanning, you know, multiple genres. But when you play... Uh, when you play out a show, it seems to be more focused on, you know, house, disco, sort of danceable, this kind of stuff. Yeah, definitely house, disco, some techno. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that, that's mainly my style. I like I like interesting and, and strange kind of house music mainly, left field mm-hmm. house music. Nice, nice, nice. So, um, yeah, I guess I briefly mentioned, you know, the Yes Chef thing. Um, can you kind of like get into uh, when you started, like when did you start playing uh, playing at, at parties and events here in Japan? Uh, when did the Yes Chef thing come around? Um, I guess you do that one. Uh, you do that with a mate, right? GCBC, uh, the good company broadcast group is that right yeah that's right yeah gcbg uh good that's good yeah. company broadcast group aka aka tim <laughs> lambo my partner in crime in this um right on. that's right so, so you, i think yeah go this, on yeah yeah the story is um of how it all came about really is i guess you know at that time when i first moved here i was just just collecting and playing records myself and and just you know learning to beat match myself. I wasn't really looking to DJ. I wasn't really, wasn't really on my radar until I got a kind of casual invite. Oh, do you want to play some, play some records out at, you know, just a small party. So oh, that sounds fun. So I took some records along and played and I was like, Oh, you know, I kind of missed, missed DJing. It's been a little while. So the bug, the bug sort of latched back on, and then from that, you know, just sort of friends parties. I did another one on a beach in Onjuku. I don't know if anyone, mm-hmm. anyone out there probably recognises it. It's quite a famous place for for beach parties over there, I think. And yeah, I played that. It was really good fun. Again, nothing too crazy. Just a little big group of friends and extended friends. And there was one guy there. I got chatting to a Kiwi guy, which is which was Tim, 
and then you know we 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 hit it off talking about music and stuff. So we went, when we got back to Tokyo, we played together again. And I think at that time I was looking for my outside of work project. You know, I always like to have something like a bit of a side hustle, something I'm working on outside of my main design work. Hopefully, mm. something that can like include design. Um, so I thought. You know, I wasn't too focused on DJing at that time. I was more focused on building something, building a brand. I didn't mm. really want to do a kind of clothing brand at that time. So I thought, you know, it'd be fun to to make a party or something to do with music, you know. So I started, I had this, you know, I have a note on my notes app with all these weird names and strange ideas that I've heard and come to me. And one of them was, Yes, chef with an exclamation mark. I can't even remember where it came from. And I thought that's quite a snappy. It's got a bit of energy to it. It's goofy. Yeah. Um. So I said to, to Tim, let's let's do a, let's do our own party, you know, and invite invite DJs we really like, and and start from there. And I drew this logo with the chef holding the records, you know, goofy little kind of nod to mascots in Japan, I guess. A little bit of Mario in there accidentally um yeah and we just threw a party and the first one was at tengu shokudo just for fun big success um and then we played together at oaf in shibuya Mm -hmm. and um you know we didn't badge it as yes chef at that time we were just playing together but it's it went well and we got booked to play again and again and it started to grow and I said well let's badge it you know let's put the yes chef badge on this uh, and make it into a, into a residency into something you know in something a little bit more solid mm. and it kind of went from strength to strength I guess more, more people started to come we made some some t-shirts with a logo on um, and. Yeah, it started to grow. And then we, we got approached by an internet radio station called Kiki, K-E-A-K-I-E dot com, um, who had Amelie Lenz and Eats Everything and a few kind of few big names doing shows on there. And they said, we want to do a show coming out of Tokyo. Um, and I think, you know, they needed it to be in the English language, which was why we we you know we're probably approached to do it um you know some of the sounds coming out of tokyo so that was the birth of yes chef radio as well mm. um so that's kind of kind of how it started just as a fun project sure sure uh, sure something, so something fun to do outside of work yeah man in terms of uh in terms of a timeline when uh when were these like initial kind of parties um you mentioned like you first, you do it regularly at Oath now, but when were the first sort of parties? What year, what year would that have been? I think the first one would have been at the end of 2020 um, mm-hmm. because during the first kind of semi-lockdown, I was learning to beat match on my, on my turntables, really. Mm-hmm. You know, that was my, my kind of COVID hobby. Mm-hmm. And then once the state of emergencies and stuff were lifted at the end of that year, Seems like a long time ago now. That's when we did our first party, yeah. 
And then the first ones at Oath probably would have been early 2021. Right. Okay, yeah. So you did use that time. <laughs> you used the time productively and you're kind of able to do the shows when the lockdown ended. I know, you know, some people who kind of like started right before may have struggled a bit, but you guys were able to kind of keep those parties going sort of throughout the pandemic. Yeah, we did. We did. It was, it was obviously hard work. Um, but we did, we did do the best that we could during that time. There were some times where we did kind of daytime Saturdays in the Ove, which is obviously a basement bar. Really, there's no windows down there. So, mm-hmm. They, that was tough, you know. Nobody really wants to go into a basement bar on a Saturday <laughs> uh, in the in the daytime, you know, because that's when you had to finish parties at eight pm. Mm. Strangely, so we did we did do that. We did all of that, but I think at least in Tokyo, it seemed like bonds kind of grew a bit stronger during the pandemic. You know, there were no new people joining, so everyone who was here was kind of hunkered down felt like everybody got a bit closer, especially in the kind of in the underground music scene as well. People were really trying to help each other out. And mm-hmm. it was obviously a tough time, but it was also kind of a productive time in a way. Um, and a bit, of a, a bit of a crazy time looking back on it, you know. There were still a lot of parties happening and mm-hmm. people were doing what they could to to get together as much as they could. For sure. Yeah. I mean, like, obviously, uh, obviously in your case, like, you know, you don't depend on the music business full time. So like you were able to, you know, um, like you said, you treat it as like a side hustle and, um, just like a extra, extra little bonus sort of thing. Um, but you know, I like, I like the fact that you said, you know, you were kind of like looking for something to kind of meet that intersection or that like kind of influence between, you know, the creative process, like the design aspect and your interest in music. Um, We didn't really get into too much like, so like you arrived in Japan and your design work, like you obviously had a pretty extensive or good resume at that time. Um, when you first arrived here, like four or five years ago, um, I guess for someone like in a similar situation, um, like since you've been here, has it been, uh, has it been fairly easy to find like work? Um, do you kind of prefer doing freelance stuff? Um, do you like the security of working for a company? Like how's your experience, um, been working in design since you've been in Japan? I think um, it's obviously completely different here to what it was like in London um, work-wise. I'd say, you know, probably four months or more of my first year here, I could straight up couldn't find work. Oh, really? Freelance work, at least, you know. I was, you know, at that time I was hanging on to more, I wanted to be freelance, I was hanging on to that. Um, So I really wanted to find freelance work here, which was very, very hard to find. Obviously didn't speak a lick of Japanese at that point as well, which didn't help. Um, and I was getting pretty desperate. Honestly, I was, I was really worried about how I was going to, 
you know, be able to, to be able to stay. I was just kind of burning through my money mm-hmm. until very luckily I got, I actually got approached on LinkedIn. I just got a message on LinkedIn by, um, you know, by somebody at an agency, somebody who'd go on to be, you know, my creative director and a bit of a mentor for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, just reached out on LinkedIn and said, look, I've got a project and they're actually looking for non-Japanese designers to work on it. So that was it. I went in and met and um, I, I went in and started working freelance. It just turned around as quick as that. That's the thing. It, it, yeah. Sometimes it feels like it's not going to happen until it does. And then you think, what was I worried about? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but without the contacts, in freelance life, it's very, very difficult. And having mm-hmm. to obviously restart, restart the contact building, you know, is obviously a massive, massive undertaking. And it was stressful. Yeah, it was stressful. No doubt. Yeah. So I guess for someone, you know, looking to do something similar to what you've done, you know, obviously you might suggest making a few contacts before you arrive or maybe having some ongoing freelance work. I, I mean, you, you know, like the state of things these days, like you don't necessarily have to be doing your, you know, you can work remotely. You can be like doing work, you know, living in Japan, but doing work for, you know, a number of different individuals or agencies around the world. But um, I think without those contacts or coming in kind of cold like you did seemed in particular like um you were setting yourself up for a challenge right yeah i think you're you're right the world has changed a lot in the last few years in respects to working remotely obviously and and even freelancing i feel like it's getting more common and more accepted to be a freelancer. I'm not really sure about in Japan, maybe a little bit, mm-hmm. but, um, the idea of working, working remotely is a big, you know, door opening for a lot of freelancers. I think it suddenly becomes a reality. I think I could definitely have more opportunity to work for companies outside of Japan now than I did even in 2018, 2019. Um, but yeah, it's it's tough. The way freelance work is viewed here is completely different. I think you know, um, it's a lot more common in the UK. Mm. Uh, yeah, contacts are essential. Yeah, it's it's very tough, and you have to just you know a lot of freelancers already know this, but it's all about meeting people and, and hustling and sending out emails and just being present and. Yeah, and and just making clear what you can bring to the table, uh, and trying to just—I don't know—just trying to let them know and feel comfortable and trust you as a freelancer. Because if you think about it from a hiring point of view, people just don't want to take a big gamble on an unknown quantity. So you have yeah. to kind of give them reason to trust you and let them know you're going to be able to do the job. Right. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. And, you know, especially like you mentioned, maybe for a Japanese company that's never kind of taken those chances on, you know, this guy just came to the country, you know, like a few months ago. Can we really trust this guy? Mm -hmm. You know, he doesn't have any 
he's never done any work with Japanese companies, right? Exactly. Um, yeah. Um, I guess like, you know, by this point, you're a little more stable. And um, do you do you prefer, like, do you still prefer freelance work or do you kind of like having a little more security working, um, you know, for a company or an agency, like having done both, right? Yeah, well, I was... I was freelance up until actually last last year, so I've been just over a year permanent now, which I never thought would happen, but, you know, life changes. I guess we all have to grow up at some point. <laughs> no, I think, I think, obviously, during the pandemic, I, like a lot of people, obviously had to hunker down. I stayed here. Um, and I was still, I was still freelancing during that time somehow, you know, obviously I was, I lost a chunk of my work at, at the start, but after that I was very lucky. Um, but you know, as I've got a bit older, I've started to feel more comfortable in, in being a bit more settled and having a bit more stability in my life. I started to, I started to accumulate possessions for the first time a few years ago, which was, you know, I was, like I said, I was literally honestly living out of a backpack for for years and years so mm. i feel good you know I, I feel like some stability is really nice got you know great friends i'm lucky to have really good friends and um solid work when it was offered to me felt like it was a too good of an opportunity to turn down you know working on some really nice projects and um, with a really great team. So I thought, you know, why not? And we can always go back at some point if we want to. Mm. You never know. But for, for, for where I am right now, with how things are going, it felt like the right the right choice. Um, sure, sure. There's good sides to both, you know. Every every coin's obviously got two sides. Right. So, yeah, so it's it's good. No regrets. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that makes sense. It seems like um, from just looking at... Uh, a bit of your work and like your um, resume and whatnot, it seems like you've shifted a little bit more into like the user interface, um, user experience uh, side of things in terms of some of your design work. Um, how did, how did that shift kind of come about and like, how do you, how do you see that side of things sort of progressing? Yeah, that's right. That's actually a really interesting point to bring up because while I was working in London I was I was and, and Melbourne as well I was feeling like you know I was doing some really nice work I was doing events work I was doing packaging design branding print design um, but I was always conscious that while it might not be a dying industry it's definitely you know digital work and user interface and user experience is going to be more and more sort of prevalent in the future um and also i was really you know i love that sort of design i was really interested in it but i didn't have i didn't have any experience doing that at that time i really wanted to get into that field but i was finding it so hard firstly as a freelancer but also you know with all this experience doing print-based stuff you know i was thinking what am i gonna what am i gonna do i have to enroll in an expensive course do a boot camp I, i'm not sure so started kind of self-teaching my you know teaching myself and just hoping for the right opportunity and again yeah I was really I was really lucky because the first project I was approached to work on as a freelancer here was for 
the website redesigned for Japan Airlines, which is obviously a massive client, massive project, and the UI and UX project. So I was, I kind of would say I, I blagged it. I knew what I was doing, but <laughs> it was definitely a big, big jump in the deep end sort of thrust into working on a project like that in a discipline that I didn't have a whole lot of experience in at that time. Um, so I, I really learned so much just from that, from, you know, launching that project. Um, and then, you know, a project after that, and before you know it, you've, you learn, you know, I'm just obviously continuing to learn, but just by doing, it's the strongest and the best way of, of learning any sort of new discipline or section of your craft i think mm. because before you know it like hang on a minute well that's it i'm i'm a ui and ux designer now i've got all these <laughs> projects and clients under my belt i didn't even really plan it to happen right right um in terms of you know like if you would give us some advice for people kind of wanting to like make that transition a little bit or like you mentioned trying to learn on your own uh what would you say like are some ways like are you watching uh tutorials are you just kind of like messing around with software are you like learning from people um how how did you kind of develop those skills yeah all all of the above really i think mm. you need to get you need to download figma or whatever the software is and in, in the dis you know if, if it's you on ux at least it's figma um and just play around with it and watch all the YouTube tutorials you can. Everything you need to learn this stuff is free online, I think. I don't think you need to enroll in any expensive boot camps or anything like that. I think you need to obviously work really hard and just cram as much information as you can. But the best way, in my opinion, would be to find a project for a, you know, a friend's website or a non-profit, any kind of charity website, or approach a business and... And try to take it on yourself because by doing it and figuring it out as you go along, once you come up to a problem, finding the solution to get over it is the best way to learn, I think. Mm. Um, I know it's easier said than done, but it really is true. There's a lot of things you can't plan for by watching YouTube tutorials, unfortunately. Sure. Yeah, right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Once you start to get a few projects under your belt and kind of know what to expect and sort of, I guess, kind of like what you mentioned, some things will go wrong or there'll be some things that you can't really plan or expect for. And when that happens, that'll be like the biggest sort of learning uh, piece of learning you're going to do. Hands on. Learning. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Dealing with clients and, and other challenges come up that you can't really plan for. Right, right. Yeah, definitely. Um, so like you you kind of briefly like mentioned this a little bit before, but like how would you say like this intersection between like the musical side of like, you know, your passion or your work or however you want to treat it, like the music side of things and your design side of things, like how would you say that they kind of influence each other or kind of speak to each other? Like, you know, when you kind of think up a party or you're like playing on a set, 
or um, it could even be like vice versa, like all the music that you've been playing or listening to um, influencing the design side of things. Would you say, you know, that they're kind of separated in like different sides of your brain or your head, or are they always kind of going back and forth? Yeah, I think, I think when I really think about it hard, like I think that's what Yes Chef, for example, has ended up being for me as well. Like I said earlier, going back to the start, I, my first love was sort of illustration and that kind of uh, that kind of design. Obviously, I love what I do, my day job, the the UI and UX side of it, more the thinking side. But Yes Chef gives me the outlet of you know branding and i design all the flyers obviously you know i made the logo myself so it gives me opportunity to sort of express that sort of side of my design passion outside of my day job mm-hmm. um so that that's a massive outlet for me obviously i love it and i like to think you know it's a, another you know another reason why it's been pretty successful um yeah and i think keeping up with what's you know the creativity in in music and design where they meet is always you know arguably one of the kind of you know the real the real battleground of where the new interesting design is coming from it's coming from um flyers posters album covers music videos um it's endless inspiration uh it's people you know designers not not kind of fighting each other but people really pushing the boundaries and looking for for what's new what's fresh and you know what especially in japan it's some of the some of the most interesting and um strange and inspiring design work is coming out of the underground music scene in in japan Mm. i definitely think that's that is always amazing to see keep you know i can't compete with a lot of these a lot of these people in terms of originality it's really some some wild stuff um so yeah i think you know playing music is is one part and that's fun and i, I love to play my music to people and to see people come out when we do our parties and we bring djs over from overseas but you know the design side of it as well is always there and it's just another another part of why I love doing this as a kind of as a hobby really hmm. right 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 yeah you kind of like you you speak to it like as a hobby um like for example if you could do some like dream project or like you could you know if you were going back to like a freelance thing or, you know, if you just had a chunk of time and money, uh, do you have some ideas like, uh, these kind of like dream projects that you might, uh, want to tackle, you know, someday, like either the design side of things or the music side of things, or like a crossover of both. Like, do you have some, uh, cool ideas floating around? Yeah. Yeah. Always. Um, I think recently, I guess one thing I've been thinking about quite a bit is I think there's a bit of a niche in Tokyo personally for a kind of 
radio slash community space slash art space or creative space. Um, you know, I've seen in Seoul, like Seoul Community Radio, mm. where, you know, a place where DJs can, can drop in and different music acts can drop in, record a set on video or just audio. You've got a space for people to hang out and have a beer or a coffee. You've got people's mm-hmm. uh, different merch designs there that you can buy. People are, you know, in the corner designing and making stuff. Um, I think Tokyo doesn't we have we have Tokyo Community Radio which is which is great, but we don't really have um too many kind of spaces like that for some reason I feel. Mm. So I'd I would love to love to look at setting something like that up just to kind of music and creative space. Mm. Um you know, and then you can imagine when international DJs and acts come come over. There's a space for them to record a set in Tokyo, and for you know people in the local scene here to to expand their kind of connections with with overseas artists as well. Mm-hmm. That's something I've been thinking about a lot recently. Yeah, mm. yeah, definitely. Yeah, that sounds cool. Yeah, um, the what would you call it then? Like the Yes Chef, like open community house or something the yes chef it's got open kitchen open kitchen (laughs) there you go yeah so it's got to have a (laughs) it's got to have a pretty good menu then too right it's got to have some uh yeah some proper chefs in there too oh the name yes chef is it's been good (laughs) but it's also it's endless puns but it's also uh people always people always assume it's got something to do with food maybe that was a (laughs) that's a bad one but yeah but yeah actually you know what even even bringing in you know got lots of friends who do their own pop-up kitchens and stuff you know bring all yeah. these people together yeah 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 would be great would be great yeah like you mentioned the the different you know like that in itself is an artistic sort of thing yeah you bring in all the different areas um yeah that does sound like a cool idea man um man i gotta thank you uh, i gotta thank you for coming on and having the chat today uh just got uh just got a couple couple more questions that i ask every guest at the end of the show if that's cool sure of course right on cool so uh yeah as this is called the inspirations pod they kind of relate to that so uh first one here is uh what is like what's something or someone you know it doesn't have to be limited to one but uh in the past i've asked three but can be something or someone that is really inspired you uh in your work or in your life something or someone that's really kind of given you inspiration throughout your life or your career um i think in terms of design it would be maybe um Johnny Ive, I've always been very interested and inspired by his work at Apple. Obviously, he doesn't mm-hmm. work there anymore, technically. But, um, yeah, I think I've always sort of strived for simplicity, and I'm a big fan of minimalism. And he, from a creative point of view, is always kind of design inspiration for me um, in my work. And then... Musically, um, 
Good question. Good question. Are there like certain DJs or certain radio hosts or people like that who may have been kind of seminal for you? Yeah. I mean, it doesn't have to be a person. It could be, um, you know, something, something in life. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I I think NTS Radio in London, I really have always admired and been inspired by their creativity um, Mm -hmm. and what they do. They keep the brand always on point. Their hosts are like impeccably selected. You know, they always have the best, the best DJs. Um, the way they present themselves, even down to their graphics, is very, obviously, very inspiring. They mm. started from very small in London as well, um, and been growing and growing without ever really, I don't think, sort of selling their soul or, or changing too much from their from their core kind of values i think mm, sure. so that's they're always an inspiration to me too yeah cool cool yeah that's a good one yeah um last one for you then so i guess on the flip side uh what does it mean for you um i guess you know someone sees your design work or they see what you've done with yes chef they come and s- listen to one of your sets your radio show what do, what does it mean for you uh, to be inspirational to other people. Well, I mean, I mean, yeah, I hope you know, it would be amazing. I don't think I'm really too inspirational to anyone just yet, but I think, um, yeah, it would it would mean it would mean a lot, and I think it would just be sort of a sign that. You know, if you just start it from a place of having fun and, you know, it doesn't have to be a hobby. It could be a, you could approach it as a side hustle or a side job, but key thing is you have to approach it from a place of genuine fun. If you don't enjoy something, you're not going to keep it up and you're not going to be able to build anything out of it. Um, Yeah. And I think it's also just comes from a place of, you know, offering something rather than looking to take something. I think. Mm. you know you meet a lot of people who are looking for looking more at what's in it for me and what what can I get out of it or why aren't I being asked to be included and they're not offering or building anything themselves so if you start building it for yourself and see what happens that's a good place to start rather than waiting for someone to give something to you I think you know just think more about what you can offer to other people first and you kind of get out of things what you put in at the end of mm-hmm. the day mm-hmm. yeah yeah definitely mm-hmm. yeah that's a that's a good point yeah and, you know for other people listening in who kind of might want to you know follow to an extent a similar path that you've taken you know i think that's some good advice um you know like you mentioned before with your design stuff always kind of keep trying to progress and maintain those contacts and then you know with the music side of it as it is kind of like a hobby and a side hustle for you like it's got to always kind of be fun and like you said um treat it like like a community like you were just mentioning and like something that everyone can offer everyone can enjoy your giving instead of taking uh, i think 
yeah, those are some of the main ideas I got out of that. Hundred percent. You can't you can't fake you can't fake anything like that. You know, people can tell whether it's something you really enjoy enjoy doing and or whether you're you're doing it for the for the wrong reasons, I guess. Mm-hmm. And you know, the most interesting people and the people I respect the most and admire the most are people who are building something for themselves and, and launching something and building their own brands, just like you're doing with the podcast. You know, I love it. I love it. More people should be building and, you know, just to start from there, you know, and then you never know what might happen. Fun things, fun things can come out of it. Yeah. Cheers. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's how we look at it. You know, it's just kind of like a cyclical thing, you know, sharing these other people's other people's stories, you know, that are doing cool things. And we just, you know, want to be a part of it uh, instead of, you know, what's in it for me, like you say, you know, what can we offer? It's great. Yeah, it's great. That's the way, that's the, that's the right attitude to start with. I think one should, should start from there rather than wait for something to be given to them, I guess. Yeah, man, for sure. So, uh, yeah, cheers, Joe. I got to thank you once again for this. So, uh, for the people. Yeah, thanks so much. For the people listening in, uh, where can where can they keep track of what's going on with uh, Joe O or Yes Chef, um, your design work? Where where are the best places for uh, people to see um, what's going on? Yeah, I mean, you can find me on Instagram at J O E O L I V R, and Yes Chef is uh, at Yes Chef Tokyo on Instagram. We're on SoundCloud. We broadcast on Kiki every Friday. Um, yes, Chef Radio. And we have our residency at Oath every first Friday of the month. Uh, yeah, Yes, Chef. The best house and disco music in Tokyo. <laughs> New guests every month from all over the world. Nice. Come and say hello. Cheers, man. All right. That was, uh, that was Joe Oliver. And this is James Mallion with ADSR Inspirations. Until next time, thanks for listening. That was another fun one, and it was great getting to meet and chat with Joe. As you can see, he is a super talented designer and musician, and it seems like he's finally found a bit of a home. Potentially his wandering days may be behind him, having lived and thrived here in Japan for around five years now. So go give Joe follow on social media and go check out the Yes Chef label the live show his radio show on kiki radio that's it for all of us at adsr inspirations as always stay inspired